So Andrew's going to come in a little bit and open God's word to us. Before he does, I just had a couple of announcements and wanted to kind of recap our summer series where we're headed this summer. And the first announcement is just a reminder that our Sunday, last Sunday, was our last Zoom Sunday. That's exciting, right? <laughs> and I want to, we're going to make it clap again in a minute because I actually wanted to take a minute and celebrate all the people that made that happen. There's a lot of work that went into those weeks and a lot of adjustments that had to be made. So I just wanted to mention a few names. I won't make you guys stand, but I just want to acknowledge the work that went into those Zoom Sundays. So Brandon and Charles, you spent a ton of work wrangling technology and making sure everything worked. Appreciate that so much. And then Brittany, you and Alex spent a ton of time just shifting gears with leading worship and recording videos and editing videos so that we could actually see lyrics while, while we were worshiping. Appreciate that so much. That served us well. And then Lissa, who stepped out, and a whole team of teachers figured out how to engage our kids every week on Zoom and to grab their attention for 15 minutes to show them the love of Jesus, to hear them scream back and forth in excitement and longing for being in person, and yet communicate with a lot of care and affection and power the love of Jesus to them. So we're super thankful for Lissa and all the teachers. So thank you, Jesus, for these servants. So our summer schedule, because we're not doing Zoom every other week, what are we doing, right? So we're going to be meeting here every other week in person at 4.30, and our summer series is called Resilient Rhythms, and we spent a lot of time in the spring talking about this up-in-out heartbeat, this healthy rhythm that we want for ourselves individually and for our church family. And so we've kind of structured our summer around that up-in-out rhythm, and we think it'll really serve our family. We're really excited about the, the rhythms that we're going to be engaging in this summer. So every other week, we will gather here at First Pres at 4.30, and we'll be looking at the spiritual practices. I'll talk about what that means in just a minute, but it's that, that up component, that intentional moving towards the presence of God. And then on the off Sundays, we're going to be rotating between uh, allowing MCs to have space to go out on mission and then having church picnics. And so that'll be every other week on the off weeks. Now, I know keeping track of a schedule like that could be a little challenging. So there's two ways you can stay up to date. If you look at the homepage of somewhatacoma.org, just scroll down about halfway. The summer schedule is there. And then we went old school and, and made some refrigerator magnets. So if your refrigerator is old enough to still be magnetic, evidently some of the new ones aren't. If it's still old enough to be magnetic, there are refrigerator magnets I'm going to put in the back, and you can grab one on the way out. And there, there's enough for every family to have one. And if you think it would, it would serve someone to invite them into these rhythms, it would serve someone to give them a magnet, feel free to grab an extra. But we made enough for each family, and we can do more of them if we need to. Now, when you see on that magnet on the schedule, MC's on mission... All that means is we're, allow, we're, we're setting aside time for MCs to intentionally move towards mission. It doesn't have to be on that day or during the time that we would normally gather, but we're simply making space for missional communities to think about how can we intentionally move towards people who don't know Jesus as the Spirit leads. So that can be anything from throwing a neighborhood barbecue to getting together to pray to writing letters to orphans. We're going to do that for one of our times together as, missional, as, as an MC. So just ask the Spirit what that looks like, and that time is just for you to be able to use um, to reach out in mission. And as we, as we gather, um, 
in community as for those church, pic- church picnics, and then we're out on mission. Then we come back on those every other Sundays, and we spend time thinking through spiritual practices. And maybe you're wondering, well, what's a spiritual practice? What do we mean by that? Um, Dawson introduced the series last week, so if you haven't seen that, watch that sermon. Um, it's on the website. Go back and listen to it. And he, he started us out in John 15 and this image of Jesus as the vine, and we're the branches who abide in Jesus. And that as we abide in Jesus, we produce fruit. And that fruit brings us joy. It brings the Father glory. And, and then he introduced this idea of a trellis, a trellis. And that, in many ways, is, is one way to describe a spiritual practice. It's an intentional structure that's built so that the, the, there's more fruit that comes on the vine. And so when we talk about spiritual practices, that's kind of what we're talking about. We're talking about these intentional movements towards engaging in the presence of God, these intentional shifts of our time and our schedule so that we can abide with Jesus. And that's, that's really what it's all about. We want to get to Jesus. We don't want to look and say, what a beautiful trellis we made. We want to say, look at the fruit that Jesus is producing as we intentionally abide in the presence of Jesus. Adele Calhoun said that spiritual practices give the Holy Spirit space to brood over our souls, birthing the ever-fresh Christ life within. That's what they are. We're just making space for the Spirit to brood over our souls. And so the last announcement is, you've heard us quote Adele Calhoun quite a bit, and her book has been super helpful in shaping our series, even the structure of our series, And we encourage every family to get a copy of that. And if your family's not in a place where you can afford that, we want to give you one. So if you're interested in that book, you think it would be helpful to you, then just send me an email. I send out, we send out a Thursday communication with a note with my email address, ben.arnold at somatacoma.org. Just shoot me an email, grab me after the gathering, and we would be happy to get you a copy of that book. Okay, I think that's it. Andrew's the teacher, so I can't keep going. But let me pray over Andrew, and uh, he'll come and give us the word. Father, thank you um, for inviting us in once again to hear your word. And we recognize as we open this book that was written hundreds of years ago, these are the words that you, Spirit of God, have given, and we pray that you would breathe life into them once again as we hear them. Thank you for Andrew pray that you would fill him with your spirit. Thank you for Anna Lee as she shares some of her story. I pray that you would encourage us and draw us to you, Jesus. We want to experience you once again as we're gathered here. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So like Ben said, my name is Andrew Cirillo. I am... um, I am one of the leaders here at Soma Tacoma, um, and you've probably heard a lot of leaders say this, but it is absolutely true. Um, the most important thing that you could know about me is that I am a child of the one true living God. Um, and I want to take a second at the outset, and we'll come back to this, but I, I think that if, if you are listening today, and that is not true of you, uh, my my encouragement, my exhortation, my plead with you today is um, that you would would allow Jesus to welcome you into the family. Uh, He desires for you to be his child. 
Um, we'll talk more about that at the end, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't start there. Um, so we're going to be talking today about some of these spiritual practices. Last week, like Ben said, Dawson did a great job kicking us off talking about kind of a rule of life in this idea that, that we, we structure our life like a trellis, not in order to build a really good trellis, but to allow the vine of our life to bear fruit. And, and as we've been talking about this series, the, the kind of title of the series that we've gone with is Resilient Rhythms. And I think that as, as we have all lived through 18 months of a pandemic and us here at this church uh, have, have been through um, another season on the, on the front end of the pandemic, I, I don't think it would be much of a stretch to say that, that the world around us struggles with this idea of resiliency. We live in a world that struggles to be resilient. Uh, even before the pandemic, I think we, we saw this. Uh, years ago, I, I saw an article um, by a, a woman named Anne Helen Peterson, um, and she later, I think, turned it into a book. Uh, she was writing specifically about millennials, but I think it applies to the larger culture at large. Um, and she says in, in her article uh, titled, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, She's reflecting on how she finds herself paralyzed at times, unable to uh, accomplish the most mundane tasks, the little errands that, that tend to fill up her to-do list. And she says, but the more I tried to figure out my errand paralysis, the more the actual parameters of burnout began to reveal themselves. Burnout and the behaviors and weight that accompany it aren't, in fact, something that we can cure by going on vacation. It's not limited to workers in acutely high-stress environments. It's not a temporary affliction. It's the millennial condition. It's our base temperature. It's our background music. It's the way things are. It is our lives. That realization recast my recent struggles. Why can't I get this mundane stuff done? Because I'm burned out. Why am I burned out? because I've internalized the idea that I should be working all the time. Why have I internalized this idea? Because everything and everyone in my life has reinforced it explicitly and implicitly since I was young. Life has always been hard, but many millennials are unequipped to deal with the peculiar ways in which it became hard for us. And while I don't agree with, with a lot of her solution, I think she does a great job in diagnosing the problem, this cultural ethos, this cultural thought that, that we have to be on all the time. Maybe you've seen it in things like side hustle culture. It's not enough to have a nine-to-five job. You've got to have your side hustle. Some Instagram influencer or whatever it may be. It also pervades the, the little moments of conversation. How often when you're, when you're seeing someone after a while, you say, hey, how have you been? And the answer is some form of busy. This, this pervades every aspect of our life. And then during the pandemic, we saw, we saw it get heightened. For those of us who, who were blessed to, to be able to keep our jobs but work from home, we saw a steady 
transition to, okay, well, if I'm working from home, am I, am I always working? I'm, I'm always available. My phone's always on me. Clients, employers, coworkers, they can reach me at any time. I feel like I'm always working. Or for others, maybe it's been a slowing of pace and realizing, wow, I was actually more burnt out. I was more exhausted and tired than I had ever realized. It took that slowing down to realize the weight that we have been carrying. You see, we live in a restless world. And what does the world do with restlessness, with that, that anxiousness? I, I just got to do something. My wife and I were talking about this the other day, that, that oftentimes when, when we come around to a night off, we feel restless. Okay, I've just got to go do something. I don't know what I need to do, but I've got to do something. Our response is to do rather than slow down and be, rather than to slow down and settle into who we are. Maybe you've felt this. Maybe you've suffered under the weight of this. Maybe you feel this, this burden on your mental health. Maybe it's your physical health. Maybe it's your relationships. But I would venture, I guess, that we all feel this weight, the weight of busyness, the weight of always feeling like we have to be on all the time. And as progressive as our culture thinks it is, and now starting to talk about these things, wanting to value work-life balance and, and all these things, this is not a new concept. And when we look at the scriptures, we see that God had an intention. He had a plan. He had some sort of structure to deal with this sense of longing, this, this burden of restlessness from page one. And while it is definitely not the only thing that God gives us, the only tool in the toolbox to deal with this feeling of restlessness today, we're going to talk about Sabbath and if you saw the little refrigerator magnet, it says Sabbath and celebration. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about celebration, but to be honest, I got really excited to talk about Sabbath, and so that's where we're going to spend most of our time. Now, Sabbath may be a triggering word for some of you, and I think there are a, a, a various number of, of ways in which you may feel about the Sabbath. Maybe you're, you're looking at this, and you hear the word Sabbath, and you say, well, well, Jesus, he, he paid the price, he, he fulfilled the law, and so that's, that's Old Testament, that is, that is an old covenant that is no longer applicable, don't want to have anything to do with it. Or maybe you hear it and say, oh yeah, I, I actually feel burdened, I feel like this is something I need to do, something I'm required to do by God, that you, you feel constrained by it, or, or maybe you, you look and you say, okay, well, I, I kind of agree with the idea, but that's essentially, you know, Sunday, we gather as a church, that's Sabbath. And while there is a tension there between those ways of looking at Sabbath, and, and I'm sure there are a million other ones, if you asked a million other people, uh, my goal here today is not to settle that debate, but rather to look at the invitation that God offers us in the Sabbath. And to look at, at the pattern of Scripture, the pattern of Sabbath that is laid out across the entirety of the Scripture. To look at the power of the Sabbath for those 
who, who would follow and believe in Christ. And then some practical tips on, on for, for those of you who feel called to observe the Sabbath, to take that rest. What does that look like? How can we do that together as a family? And so I'm going to start where God started, uh, Genesis 1, and I'm going to read a big old chunk of scripture, Um, and you will not see it on the screen behind me, very intentionally. Uh, The book of Genesis is a beautiful book of poetry, and uh, if you are in a place where you can do so, um, or feel the freedom to do so, I would encourage you to close your eyes and listen to this account of our God doing an amazing work. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw the light was good And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruits, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there was their seed according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let there be for signs and seasons, for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God sent them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living thing, creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good, and God blessed them, saying, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth, and there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day, and God said, let the earth bring forth creatures according to their kinds, livestock, 
and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kind and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them, and God said, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over everything that moves on the earth. And God said, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And every beast on the earth, and to every bird in the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And then on the seventh day, God finished his his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work which he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. Would you guys would pray with me? Father, you are the creator. You are the one true living God, the creator of heavens and earth. And we come before you now to meet with you, to experience the power of your presence. We ask that you would meet with us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So there we see, in that big chunk of scripture, we see that God creates everything in six days. And yet, as I was reading this, I think one of the things that is, that is more impressive, as if you could get more impressive than creating everything in six days, is the fact that he stops on the seventh day. And it, and it poses a question, a God who, who can create, a God who can speak things into being. Why does he stop? Why does God stop his creation work. It was not because he was tired. This is a God who does not tire, who does not sleep. And so God's stopping is something much more than us stopping our created efforts. Of us saying, like I did this morning, okay, I've, I've mowed the lawn. I can't push the lawnmower any further or else I will pass out. God does not stop his work that way. He stops because he was finished. He had created good things. He looked at it and said, this is good. This is perfect. It's complete. I'm done. Maybe for those of you who, who are gardeners, you are equally as impressed as I am. I know working in a garden, work is never done. I have yet to put my hand to any 
effort that ever feels fully done. And yet God, looking down on creation, says, it's good. It is finished. I'm done. I'm going to rest. And that word rest that the Hebrew authors use is Shabbat. That's where we get the term Sabbath from. It is literally translated cease. It is just stopping. But if you look at, if you look at the root words, where that root word comes from, the yeshav is not to just stop, but it's to settle in or to dwell. You can think of it kind of like when you get home from, from a long day of work and you settle into that overstuffed chair, you kind of sink in. You settle in. You're, you're dwelling there now. You're no longer moving you now reside. You're abiding in that chair. And this is what God was doing. When he ceased his work, he was settling in to creation. He was, he was coming to dwell with his creation. And where do we see him later on? We see him walking in the garden in the cool of the day. When God stops his work, he settles in. He dwells among it. And one of the interesting things here, and I had never really noted this before, God creates six days, boom, 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 it's all good, and he rests. And I, I tend to think of it through the lens of the author of, of Genesis, that, that there are these six days that we see and we recount, and those are things worth celebrating, but the Spirit this week brought to mind, well, what would this have looked like for man? for Adam, for Eve. Created on the sixth day, what man experiences, first breath, and God says, okay, now it's time to rest. Man was created into rest. And God says, hey, Adam, hey, Eve, I have done this work. Why don't you come rest with me? Adam and Eve hadn't done any work. There was a job for them to do. And God would get around to telling them what that job was. But once they were created, God looks at them and says, Hey, come rest with me. You who have not put your hand to the plow at all, I've done it. Come rest with me. The scripture makes the importance of this God-dependent rest clear to us, even in how it talks about the days. And maybe you picked up on that as we were reading the passage. As God describes the days, he, 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 the days actually start in the evening. If you have any Jewish friends or have any Jewish heritage, been around the Jewish community, they, they, they have continued this tradition of the days starting in the evening. And why does God start the day in the evening? Well, I think one of the reasons is a reminder for us. Because what do we do in the evening? Well, what I do in the evening is I, I sit down to eat. My, my stomach is growling. I understand that I need provision from something outside of me. And so I sit down to eat and partake of good food that I did not create. And then what do I do later on in the evening? I lay down and sleep. I, I, I'm dependent upon some force outside of me to wake me up in the morning to keep my household safe. That in, in the evening, I have these two clear reminders that, 
that I am not the one who is in charge. I am not the one who is in control. I cannot provide for myself. I am not my own security. I need something else. But how do we describe our days? Our days describe our, our days start as soon as we get up, when we start to do, when we start to work, when we start to chase after our provision or our own security. As soon as the coffee kicks in, we're running. But God says, no, wait. The day starts with you needing things from me. The day starts with your dependence upon me as your father. And so man was created into this rest, created into this beautiful garden. But we did not stay there long. Man chose to seek our own provision and our own security, ultimately our own identity apart from God. God had created this beautiful thing and invited us into it, and we turned to him, and not just Adam and Eve, but we today ourselves in this world turn to him and say, I think I can provide for myself. I think that I can be my own security. I think that I have a different identity I I would like than the one you have given me. And so we, as men, have, have sought after our own provision, sought after our own security, sought after our own identity, and experienced the downward spiral of sin. In the Bible, we see that man becomes enslaved to sins. And not just to sins, but we see that people of Israel actually become enslaved to the Egyptians, We experience separation from God. We pursue our own identity. And ultimately we become enslaved by the very things that we have sought for our identity. But God does not abandon his people. Instead he pursues them and redeems them. He liberates them with an outstretched hand. And we see this. In the book of Exodus, as the the Israelites are being redeemed and led out of Egypt, God invites them again. Just like he did in the garden saying, man, now that you have been created, I've done the work, but come and enjoy my rest. God says to the Israelites, hey, I'm the one bringing you out, but come and enjoy my rest. He provides for them manna every day. They wake up and there's food there for them to eat in the middle of a desert. We think it's hot here. They wake up and there's manna outside and God says, yes, I am going to provide for you. You need provision and I'm going to give it to you. But hey, on the seventh day, I want you to rest. I'm going to take care of it. Not only are you not the one who's making the manna, But on the seventh day, you don't even have to pick any up off the ground. I will make sure you have enough. And these people who are wandering through the desert, wandering through a land, they do not know. I'm sure they were were quite afraid. God says, hey, I am going to be your protection. And on every seventh day, I invite you to rest in that. You don't need to worry about making sure that your borders are secure and that you've circled the caravan and all that kind of stuff. I'm actually going to go in front and behind. 
I will protect you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to make sure that you are secure and I'm going to give you the identity of my children. Rest in me. And as the Israelites are leaving, they are given the Ten Commandments. And in in the Torah, the Old Testament, the first five books, we actually see two different Uh, two different times in which the Ten Commandments are talked about. And then as God invites his people into the Sabbath, he actually does it in two different ways. In the book of Exodus, the call to remember the Sabbath, to enter into that rest that God provides, it is seen as an act of worship reminding them of the way that God created and rested from his good work. He's saying, "I've, I've done the work of creating, and I want you to rest in it. In Deuteronomy, we see that the call to remember the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath, is an act of worship reminding us of the way that God has liberated the Israelites from slavery. So not only is God saying, hey, I did a work back in the garden, and I want you to be able to rest in my work as your provider, as your protector, as the one who gives you identity, but I've actually done another work. I liberated you. You were enslaved, and I came and freed you, and now you can rest. And so God invites his people once again into his rest. And we see all throughout Scripture reminders, God calling his people back to his rest, because God reminds us, because he knows that we forget. The Israelites were a very forgetful people. Maybe today you can identify with that. But as God calls his people to the Sabbath rest, the call is not just to work that had been done. It is not just to work that had been done in the garden and creation. It's not just to the work that had been done in liberating his people from the bondage of slavery in Egypt, but it was also pointing forward to the ultimate work that he would do. And so we see scattered throughout the scriptures these little reminders of this this work that God's going to do, a little foretaste, a foreshadow of the rest that was coming. Every seven days, God calls his people to cease working and rest in the rest that God has provided as a foreshadowing of that true rest that was to come. Every seven years, God calls his people to cease counting debts and to forgive debtors as a foreshadow of the debt that would be forgiven. And every seven times, seven years, God calls his people to cease bondage of people and of the land and to restore everything back to a state of freedom as a foreshadowing of the liberation that God would bring. All throughout Scripture, God is pointing forward. He's saying, hey, look, look at these things that I have done. These are foreshadows. They're foretastes of a work that I'm going to do. And so we get to Jesus. And Jesus arrives on a scene where the idea of a Sabbath rest is twisted, if not fully forgotten. You see, the Pharisees had taken 
God's word and this call to enter God's rest, and they, be, they, they twisted it into another to-do list item, another form of oppression or slavery. Jesus is actually confronted by some of them, and, and we talked about this a few months back in the book of Mark. He's confronted about breaking the Sabbath because the Pharisees become, had become overly concerned with the minutia of the law. In Matthew 23, Jesus is talking about how the Pharisees, they, they begin heaping up burdens on people unwilling to lift even a finger to help. And yet when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, hey, you've, you've missed it. Man was not made for the Sabbath. You're, you don't need to be enslaved to these ideas anymore. Rather, the Sabbath was made for man. And what Jesus is clarifying for us is he reminds us that the purpose of Sabbath, it, it, it isn't something that we need to do because we are obligated, but rather it's a gift. You have been given a gift by the creator of the universe. It's an invitation to settle into your father's rest and to cease striving to find your own. It was made for you to remind you of where your provision comes from, where your security comes from, where your identity comes from. And I don't know about you, but I, I have yet to give someone a gift and then force them to open it. If our, if our Father has given us a gift, said, hey, I, I want to invite you into my rest. You don't need to do the work anymore. You can rest. I want to gift you that. Would we not run to him? But Jesus not only reminds us of the purpose of the Sabbath. He not only comes to to correct our understanding of the law, but he comes to do a greater work. And we see Jesus, a number of chapters later, arms spread on the cross. And what does he say? It is finished. You see, just like God said in the garden, hey, this is good. What I have done is is done and it's good and I can rest. Jesus now on the cross says, I too have finished a work. My father did a good work in the garden. I'm doing a good work here on this hill. And and my father invited men and women into his rest. And I too am inviting people into my rest. No longer would man's security require striving. Would their provision require striving. No longer would we need to strive in order to earn the right standing before God that we so desperately need. Jesus, in his body, has given us all these things. He has given us identity. He has given us security. He has given us provision and right standing. And he has invited us to rest in it. So today, brothers and sisters... If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
Dawson talked last week about following the breadcrumbs of our desires, not just seeing desire as this, this terrible thing, this lustful, like, got to cram out desires, but rather pay attention to those desires. Do you yearn for rest? Follow your desire. Do you find yourself in a never-ending pursuit for provision? Follow your desire. Do you find yourself battling over the nagging fear in the back of your mind that your security is at risk and you just need to work harder? Follow your rest. Follow your desire. Because I am confident that all of those desires will find their ultimate satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus. They will lead you to the one who on the cross said, it is finished. Believe in me, put your faith in me, and enter my rest. This verse has been read several times today in our, in our pre-gathering prayer meeting. I, I do not think it is any coincidence that it is on my my notes for today. But Jesus says this over the people. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Do you feel that today? He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, family, this is the power of Sabbath. When God set up this this rhythm saying, hey, every seven days, I want you to stop and rest, to cease and settle in. What he's calling us to is this weekly reminder that God is sufficient. I don't know about you, but my weeks are generally reminders that I am not sufficient. So God says, hey, at the end of that, I want to take a moment to remind you that I am sufficient. He has provided. He will continue to provide. It is a reminder that we do not need to find our own rest, but rather we are invited to experience God's rest. You don't need to strive. You don't need to work for this. God has done it, and he's invited you into it. Now, this this message is titled Sabbath and Celebration, and I mentioned that I would talk briefly on celebration, and I think it is true that as children of the king, we have a lot to celebrate, right? Whether it's uh, things like common grace, maybe it's early morning sunrises, the sound of the ocean, or seeing Mount Rainier for the first time after a long winter. Those are things worth celebrating. Or maybe it is special and specific grace. Maybe it's the Father speaking a word of encouragement through a brother or sister. Or maybe it's the Spirit showing up to convict you of sin and leading you 
into repentance. Or maybe it's the power of Jesus showing up to heal. All of these things are worth celebrating, and we are called to pursue them as often as we can. But the the reason I wanted to focus on Sabbath today is, is I think we as a church have gotten the idea of celebration well. We are a church that that likes to throw parties. My wife is a really good cook. And so any opportunity to celebrate, we're there. But I think for me, and I hope for us, Sabbath becomes the pinnacle of celebration. We see God working all throughout the week. We see beautiful sunrises. We see God show up in amazing ways. We see conviction and repentance and restoration in our city. But come Sabbath, we are reminded that at the end of the day, God is sufficient. His rest is enough. And I have the opportunity to rest with Him, to settle in with Him, to sit in that overstuffed chair, but this time, I'm sitting in the lap of my father. I don't need to worry. I don't need to fear. His work is enough. So now I want to move on to the practice of Sabbath. There may be some of you here who who hear this and think, "I, I long for that. I want to experience that rest that cessation of striving. So how do I do it? I, by no means, am an expert. But I wanted to tell you the things that I've learned. In a little bit, my wife is going to come up and and tell you her perspective as well. Um, So to start off, what is the Sabbath? Just real broadly, it is an intentional time. It's intentional It isn't just another day off. There's nothing wrong with taking a day off, but it's intentional. It's our pursuing of God in rest, saying, I I want to come and be with the Father. I want to experience His rest. I don't want to just stop working, but I actually want to enter His rest. It's also a reminder of our true identity. It's amazing, as, as I mentioned, I think as a, as a culture, a rather progressive culture, uh, I'm starting to see the idea of Sabbath be picked up uh, by those outside the church, um, but it's a little twisted, and it becomes this, like, Silicon Valley tech bro, like, hey, if, if you take a day off a week, then, like, your productivity is going to go up 200%, and you're going to get more done, and like it's all about optimization. It's all about what can I produce if I rest. That's not what the Sabbath is. It's it's not optimization. It's a reminder of identity. And so what does that look like? I think it can look like a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Uh, A brother down in Portland, John Mark Comer, kind of gives this four-word uh, four framework. Um, Andre, if you want to throw up the, that slide, he gives the idea of stop, rest, worship, and delight. 
Okay, I want to enter into the Sabbath. What does that look like for me? Well, well does it, does it fit, fill this grid? Am I, am I stopping? Am I resting? Or, or am I just kind of striving after something new? Is this something that, that fills my heart with worship? And, and am I delighting in God in the midst of this? And so if you do feel called this summer to partake of the Sabbath, to remember and observe the Sabbath, this is a great tool for you. Some other things, and this is the next slide, Andre. Some of the things that have been helpful that that I have learned about, um, and people like Adele Calhoun have put together some of these lists as well, helpful to, to start out by marking the beginning of your Sabbath. Maybe this is, okay, and I guess I got all the way through this, I didn't really mention. So the traditional Jewish Sabbath would be from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, ceasing all work, ceasing all striving. And so I think that there is an importance. It doesn't have to be a 24-hour period. This can be something you work into if you feel called to it. But it's helpful to mark the beginning of the Sabbath, to stop, and whether that's a prayer that you say, a song that you sing, lighting candles, something to commemorate, because this time is set apart. This time is, is unique. It's not the hustle and bustle of the rest of, the, of our days. Mark the beginning of the Sabbath. If you can, make it regular. This is a, it's a rhythm And it's helpful to have some sort of cadence to that rhythm. Beyond that, eat good food. (laughs) Like I mentioned, my wife is an excellent cook. Come Sabbath with us. You will eat good food. Spend time with friends and family. Invite others in. Maybe you have a neighbor who does not know the Father. Say, why don't you come Sabbath with us? Why don't you rest with us? I get to rest in the work that Jesus did on the cross, that means I don't have to do that work anymore. I don't need to strive to prove myself before God. Would you want to come and hear about that rest? Would you want to come and witness that rest? Maybe enter into it? Because God is calling. It could be helpful to spend time alone with God. It's an intentional time. What does he want to say to you? in this moment where is he leading you what is he asking you avoid the to-do list set those things aside you do not need to work you do not need to strive maybe it's going for a walk maybe it's following the lead of don crook and, and and walking around and praying for your neighborhood maybe it's singing maybe it's dancing Maybe it's praying. Maybe it's reflecting on what God has been speaking to you. And if you're observing the Sabbath with other people, inviting each other into that. Hey, what what has God been saying to you today? This is what he's been saying to me. Let's celebrate that. Let's celebrate not only that God has done the work, but he's doing a work in us. And then this one I think I put on there mostly for myself. Turn off the phone. I have a hard time with that one. And lastly, mark the end of the Sabbath. 
our family has, has recently started uh, singing the doxology to end the Sabbath. Gathering on mom and dad's bed in the evening and singing the doxology together. And it's a great way of just kind of commemorating, okay, we're carrying this rest with us. We're not, we're not leaving God's rest, but we are transitioning. And now we get to take this rest into the rest of our week. The rest of our days can now be marked with this rest. And so lastly, so God rested on the seventh day. He did another thing. It says he blessed the day and made it holy. So God says this day, this seventh day, this is holy. This is where we get the term holiday. So brother and sister, you are invited to celebrate one holiday every single week. 52 times a year, you are invited into God's presence to celebrate a holiday with him. Where he says, come, rest with me. It's all the joy of Christmas without the chaos. It's, it's the warmth of thanksgiving without the tryptophan afterwards. Like you are, invi- you are given a gift and God says, hey, I want you to experience this holiday with me. Come and rest. Rest in my work. I've done it. I'm inviting you in. And so with that, I'm going to have my wife come on up and share a little bit about her experience with the Sabbath and what the Spirit has been showing her. Hello. Um, I started practicing Sabbath when I was in college and felt like there was always more to do or study for. Um, But I decided that I wanted to just see what it would be like to practice um, Sabbath. And so um, I would let myself sleep in. No kiddos. I was able to actually sleep in. (laughs) Um, I didn't do any homework or chores, which were few and far between since I was living with other girls. But um, I felt a lot easier to rest then than it does now once I let go of my anxiety and control about studying. Um, There were specific times I remember thinking on a Saturday morning, I'll just work a bit on that paper or I'll study a little bit for that exam. But every time I decided to trust God that I could rest, and every time it worked out that I would have more time the next day to write that paper or study, or I could let go of not having the grade I wanted, and that would be okay too. I don't exactly remember why I stopped practicing Sabbath, but a few years ago, I started thinking more about getting back into it, and so I was reading some books and just meditating on um, scripture in that, and um, was trying to figure out how that works with young kids, too. Um, I've known for a while my struggles with anxiety and control, and felt like this would be a really helpful practice to let go of my perceived need to check all the boxes and finish all the to-do lists. The physical rest has really helped my soul rest and depend on Jesus' finished work. For a while, we weren't very consistent with practicing the Sabbath, but the pandemic really helped us to be more intentional when all the days felt the same, and it helped to break up the week as well as just help us to to rest. At first, it was sort of a last-minute thought of, oh, tomorrow's the Sabbath. Like, what are we doing? I'm not ready. But now the week builds up to it. I meal plan around it. I do chores around it. I plan activities around it. 
So for example, Fridays, I don't plan a whole lot so that we can clean the house and um, prepare a meal or just, just kind of relax and get ready for the Sabbath. It's taken a long time to find a rhythm, and there are still things we want to implement and grow in, but some of the things we do practically are sweep, have all the laundry folded, which with kids is hard, and sometimes you inevitably do laundry on Saturdays anyways. We try to sleep in. Um, we eat leftovers or take out for dinner, so there's less dishes. Never do errands or do scheduling businessy talk with between Andrew and I. It really helps to just relax and not think about the next week. Um, we also like to read, garden, nap, um, just let go of all the things on the list. I like to put my planner on top of my microwave so I can't see it. <laughs> that really helps me not think about all the things on my lists. Um, some things I want to grow in, though, is just beginning the Sabbath on the Friday night before, like Andrew said, just starting with, with actual physical rest um, and honing in our rituals that mark the start and end of the Sabbath. I think the thing that, that the Lord has taught me most and which surprised me the most was how the Sabbath informs the rest of the week. I'm more, um, or intentionally resting on one day has made me slow down the other six days. I'm more intentional about how I plan each day, which has made me more patient and present with our kids and less frazzled at the end of the day with Andrew. I would say less tired, but our two-year-old continues to wake up at 5 a.m., so <laughs> still tired. <laughs> I don't feel as anxious about not finishing the to-dos, partly because I've become more realistic about them and my dependence on God, but also because I don't feel like my worth is in finishing everything. Like Wayne Muller says in his book on the Sabbath, Sabbath is not dependent upon our readiness to stop. We do not stop when we are finished. We do not stop when we complete our phone calls, finish our project, get through the stack of messages, or get out this report that is due tomorrow. We stop because it is time to stop. Sabbath requires surrender. If we only stop when we finished with all our work, we will never stop because our work is never completely done. With every accomplishment, there arises a new responsibility. Every swept floor invites another sweeping. Every child bathed invites another bathing. When all life moves in such cycles, what is ever finished? The sun goes round, the moon goes round, the tides and seasons go round, people are born and die, and when are we finished? If we, if we refuse rest until we are finished, we will never rest until we die. Sabbath dissolves the artificial urgency of our days because it liberates us from the need to be finished. <laughs>